This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We're doing this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about the Warlord 15 through 17. Green Arrow 7 and 8, Star Slayer number 3, and John Sable 10 and 11, including the first appearance of Maggie the Cat. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com, which is his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with occasional news updates. If you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He's always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you're unable to see Mike Grell at a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Cress of Catskill Comics. He's the official representative of Mike Grell for commissions. Scott's always friendly and helpful. Also, as we mentioned last time, fans will want to check out the trailer for the upcoming movie Star Raiders, The Adventures of Saber Rain, which features Mike Grell in a small role. He shared the trailer with us at Cherokee Comic Con. I think it looks like a fun, lighthearted sci-fi adventure. We'll include a link to the trailer in our show notes. And here are a few other resources that Mike Grell fans will enjoy. If you are on Facebook, check out the Mike Grell page expertly run by Gus Ceballos. Professor Allen at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network is a Mike Grell fan and occasionally covers his comics on his show. Jeff Messer at the Geek Brain Podcast is a lifelong fan and has done a couple of interviews with Mike Grell on his show. Green Arrow fans should enjoy the Emerald Archer podcast from Ed and Nick Moore, which covers Green Arrow comics both past and present. Black Canary fans have a couple of podcasts they can check out, including Ryan Daly's Powers of Fishnets that features both Black Canary and Zatanna, and Feathers and Foes with Ashford and Leah that focuses on the birds of prey, including Black Canary. Links to all of those resources are in our show notes for those of you who want to check them out. We would love to hear from you. Please drop us a note to let us know what you think of the show. Give us your thoughts on the stories or art or any aspect of Mike Grell's comics. We'll give our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcast, which is Trekker Talk. It's devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the excellent comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. In the latest episode of that show, we cover the Justice League Spectacular to coincide with the release of Batman v Superman. And we'll include a link to that podcast in our show notes as well. Green Arrow number 7, Black Canary, August 1988. Plot by Sharon Wright. Green Arrow script by Mike Grell. Green Arrow pencils by Ed Barreto. Inks by Dick Giordano with Arnie Starr. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Lacomet. Editor, Mike Gold. Introducing Sharon Wright, Black Canary script. 
and Randy DeBurke, Black Canary Pencils. It's winter in Seattle. Oliver picks up Dinah from the park and tells her he is having trouble tracking down evidence that can be used against the Chinese tongs, who he knows are running drugs through gambling houses. The next day, Oliver takes the Sherwood florist van to the car wash. There we see Rita, an attendant working at the car wash, who seems to recognize the van. Later, she answers a phone call and has to search for the assistant manager and finds him making a copy of a key, but doesn't initially think anything about it. However, he's startled and gets upset with her. Back at Sherwood Florist, Oliver is making arrangements to follow a lead on the tongs to Alaska. He invites Dinah, but she says she needs to stay back to run the shop. Oliver is excited about the prospects of seeing the start of the Iditarod race as part of the investigation, but that still doesn't convince Dinah to join him. Later, Rita from the car wash shows up at the florist to see Dinah, and we are reminded of who she is. She explains that after the accident where she ran through the window at the shop while high on crack cocaine, she couldn't remember who had helped her, but when she saw the Sherwood florist van at the car wash, the memories came back. Dinah is happy to see her and asks how things are going. Rita explains that she's off drugs and was happy with her job at the car wash until she just got fired today. She now knows her boss must be up to something bad and that he let her go because of her surprising him earlier in the day. Dinah tells her she will investigate. Oliver heads off to catch a ferry to Alaska, and Dinah goes to see what more she can learn about Rita's former boss. Dinah follows him to the docks and is surprised to see him drive onto the same ferry that Oliver is taking to Alaska. Surprised at the coincidence, Dinah returns home only to find her car is missing. On the ferry, Oliver is looking forward to his time in Alaska, but is already missing Dinah. As he wanders through the maze of autos, he sees Dinah's car and is excited to think that she has decided to join him after all. But when he checks in at the registration desk, he is told she isn't on board. He leaves Dinah a message to let her know her car is on the way to Alaska without her. He searches the car and finds a stash of white powder and plastic bags in the trunk of the car. This issue features a very nice cover. There's a Green Arrow poster on the wall of an alley that has the regular list of credits for a Green Arrow issue, including Grell, Hannigan, and Giordano. A new list of credits has been pasted over the old credits in the way that posters get updated for Broadway shows when there's a change in the cast. Plus, a Black Canary banner has also been added. Black Canary herself is standing in front of the poster, caught in an action pose near a car, and we can see reflections in the car door of three thugs charging toward her. The art in the issue features some great winter atmosphere of scenes around the city, filled with dark skies and lots of rain. I applaud Randy DeBurke, the artist of the Black Canary part of the story, for using several creative camera angles in that section. I also like the use of reflections and objects. While the art isn't as polished as what we're used to, it's still nice to see someone experiment with the medium. Some of the effects come off very well, while a couple fall a little short. Linking the story to an earlier issue through the character of Rita is a very nice touch. It's just another example of how rich and developed these stories are, that minor characters can come back later in interesting and unexpected ways. I like how well Dinah and Oliver get along in this issue and the series as a whole. They are supportive of each other and work well together. To wrap up my thoughts, I'll mention that my favorite page is the next to the last page where we see a full-figure view of Green Arrow in color in the center of the page that is overlapping a close-up of Green Arrow's face that is done in shades of gray. A very nice effect. Green Arrow number 8, The Powderhorn Trail, September 1988. Writer, Mike Grell. Artist, Paris Collins. Finishes, Gary Martin and Dick Giordano. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Laquament. Editor, Mike Gold. Picking up where the previous issue left off, 
Green Arrow examines the powder he found in the trunk, but he can't identify it, so he takes a small sample to keep for analysis. Now dressed as Green Arrow, he stows away in the trunk of the car before it departs the ferry. When the car comes to a stop, he sneaks out of the trunk and realizes he is in the midst of a car theft ring. Cars all around are being painted and getting new license plates. The driver returns to Dinah's car and collects the plastic bags from the trunk. Green Arrow trails him to a casino, where he overhears a plan for someone named Quinn to transfer the smuggled bags of powder. Green Arrow goes to the police station and shares the information he's collected, and asks for the powder to be analyzed. The police and Green Arrow go back and raid the stolen car garage, making several arrests. There is a simultaneous raid at the car wash in Seattle, and Rita's former boss is also arrested. He had been making copies of the customer's keys while their cars were being washed. They would later go to the customer's homes and steal the cars, just as they did with Dinah's. Green Arrow leaves the police station and changes back into his civilian clothes to watch the start of the Iditarod race, when he notices the name of one of the contestants is Quinn, the same name he overheard mentioned at the casino. We see the race in progress, and one sled driver leaves the course and goes to a clearing where a helicopter lands to pick up the bags of white powder. Suddenly, three snowmobiles race over the hill. Green Arrow has brought a customs agent and several police officers with him. Green Arrow goes airborne on his snowmobile and lets loose several arrows through the window of the helicopter. He then jumps from his snowmobile and lands a hard punch onto Quinn's chin. It turns out the white powder isn't the drugs everyone expected, but instead it's the equally illegal ground-up rhinoceros horn. The gang members are arrested, but there is no room left for the dogs on the vehicles, so Green Arrow excitedly volunteers to ride the dog sled back to Anchorage. The issue ends with a broad grin on Green Arrow's face and the promise he makes to the dogs to buy them all steaks when they get back to Anchorage. The cover features a snowy scene of Green Arrow on a dog sled being pulled by six dogs with sharp teeth. The issue uses a technique we've seen in the series before, using background colors around the edges of the pages to group scenes together. For instance, the pages at the auto theft garage are in purple, then when Green Arrow starts to trail the smuggler, the pages are edged in yellow. It's a nice touch. When her car is stolen, Dinah's blue car gets painted yellow, which is very fitting for a canary, but maybe not a black canary. I enjoyed seeing Green Arrow team up with the authorities to have the criminals brought to justice. It's nice to see our hero working alongside police officers. And I like the detective work of trailing the contact to the casino, overhearing the plans, and then connecting it to the contestants in the race. In this section, there's a great sequence of Green Arrow sliding down a roof and then doing a somersault to the ground. There's a beautiful silhouette of Quinn's dog sled team with a yellow sky and red sun in the distance. It's gorgeous. And the three pages of action when the snowmobiles arrive are very exciting with lots of different angles and perspectives. There are great snow scenes and gorgeous landscapes throughout the issue. I particularly like the closing silhouette of Green Arrow and the dog sled team traveling across the snow. Again, I appreciated the tie-in to earlier issues with Rita's return, as well as Oliver's interest in the Iditarod race from a few issues ago. Of course, once we learn what the contraband really is, we understand the meaning of the title, The Powderhorn Trail. It also illustrates Mike Grell's strong feelings about poachers and this type of illegal trade, as we periodically see storylines about this in both Green Arrow and John Sable. Don't call them babes. Definitely don't call them broads. But can we call them birds? Welcome to Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast where we are celebrating the tales of the Femme Fatales. Superman flies above you, Aquaman rules below you, but the birds stand with you. Feathers and Foes, I'm your host Ashford, and in the studio with me is... Hello. Black Canary? Wait a minute, what did you do with Leah and Mark? 
Did you just call me a broad? No, I said don't call them babes. Don't call them broads. So you're saying I'm not a babe? No, yes. I don't know. I, I don't see you as some object. I see you as a well-rounded character with her own wants, desires, and agency. Stop saying buzzwords, hoping to gain a female audience. Canary, how dare you question my sincerity? That's Black Canary to you. Do you want me to plug your show or not? Please plug my show, Miss Canary. You can contact Ashford, Leah, or Mark on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Feathers and Foes. You can also email them on the website feathersandfoes.libsyn.com. In addition to all of this, you may subscribe to them on iTunes. Just go to the search option and type Feathers and Foes. Star Slayer, the director's cut number three, July 1995. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Rob Pryor. Letters, Steve Haney. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story picks up as Torin is being teleported from the midst of battle the moment before he would have been killed by the Roman troops that had outnumbered him. He is expecting death, but is unable to make sense of his confusing surroundings. He wonders what sorcery is at work, why he doesn't have spear wounds, and yet one eye remains blind. Tomra tries to explain that he is not dead, but was transported to the future just before the spears hit him, which is why he has no wounds. However, his eye was lost earlier in the battle, so there was nothing she could do about that. If she had transported him at any time other than the moment before he died, she could have impacted the timeline and changed the future. He doesn't understand, and calls her a witch and charges toward her with his sword raised. She turns quickly and stuns him with a laser gun and arranges to get him medical attention. Tamra has a video conference with the board of directors of Earth, who express concern over her selection of Torin as champion for the planet. Tamra shares a relief that his strength, wits, and instinct for survival are just what they need. Later, Torn wakes and is a bit more calm as he works to figure out his situation. Tamra says she is a scientist and explains it as a sort of advanced sorcery. She tries to explain that she looked back into time and selected him to bring him to the future to figure out how to defend the planet Earth. He can't go back, because if he returns, it will be to the moment of his death, otherwise it would disrupt history. Tomer explains that over time the Earth became extremely polluted and overcrowded and people were convinced that the planet was dying. As a result, many humans left Earth to colonize other planets and they were genetically altered to adapt to life on those other worlds. There was enough for everyone and a long period of peace and advancement descended upon the solar system and the Earth slowly recovered. Then, with the passage of much time, the Sun became a red giant completely engulfing Mercury and Venus. However, as a red giant, the sun is not generating as much heat as in the past, so the most distant colonies in the solar system are being abandoned, and the colonists are raging war throughout the solar system as they vie for territory to call their own. The people of the earth had enjoyed centuries of peace, but are now at a disadvantage as the threat of war looms ahead. They are looking for a warrior, something not needed in centuries, to help them survive the battles ahead. Tomra introduces Torin to a symbionic android mindlink, a.k.a. Sam. It is a mobile microcomputer who looks a bit like a robotic monkey. It is small enough to sit on someone's shoulder. Sam has been studying the earliest archives he can locate, and he has learned an ancient speech pattern that he calls bogey. It is based on recordings he has found, called the Maltese Falcon and the African Queen. Sam is confident that these will help him communicate best with Torin. Tomra gives Torin a headband with a built-in eye patch to cover his injured eye. He puts it on and is amazed that it gives him normal vision, but it also fills his mind with centuries of data. He suddenly knows many things, but doesn't understand how. 
She explains that it is linked to Sam's database, and it will allow the two of them to communicate with it as well. Next, she shows him a new outfit and weapons that she has prepared for him. He recognizes the gun as the one that was used to stun him earlier. He wants to exchange the new sword she gives him for his much larger and heavier broadsword, convinced that it would be a more powerful weapon. However, she demonstrates the electrical superpower of the new weapon, easily cutting his broadsword in half. She explains that while she has given him a gun, that only swords can be used on spaceships as there is too much danger of a stray laser shot from a gun, breaching the hull and causing a disaster. Suddenly, a creature rips through a wall and attacks, but Torin quickly dispatches it, and we learn that it was a trap set by the skeptical board of directors to test Torin. Torin agrees to help the cause, but insists that he will try to find a way back to his home, no matter what Tamra says. There is a colorful cover that is appropriately divided into three sections for this third issue, with the Celtic landscape and Roman invasion ship on the left, a view of Torin as he is transported in Midleap in the center, and a cityscape from the future on the right side. This issue is definitely all about exposition and includes lots of the foundation of the story. It explains some of why Torin was selected and the challenges that face Earth. The art is wonderful throughout the issue. There's a nice variety of layouts and very effective use of pages with minimal panels allowing figures to overlap or connect from one scene to the next, creating nice transitions. Figures and faces are all detailed. The art really helps the story move forward, especially since the issue is mostly explanation without much action. The two-page spread of the solar system with the red giant sun in the center is very impressive. I like Torn's new pirate-themed costume and cool sword and the effect creates a warlord-style design. I also like the augmented reality headband eye patch. Mike Grell envisioned Google Glass long before it existed. I hope he gets a royalty check. The issue ends with a remarkable two-page spread with a Jolly Roger's huge red sail unfurled and billowing in the solar winds. You may have noticed that in this issue, Tamara's name changes to Tamra and remains that way through issue 8. The name was Tamara in the original version of the series and in the first two issues of this version. We don't know why it changed. If anyone knows, write in and tell us. We'll also try to remember to ask Mike Grell the next time we see him. Hello listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I am the host of the Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. Secret Sagas of the Multiverse is a review and discussion show where I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts take on topics related to comic books, superheroes, genre fiction, movies, television, and much more. We look at comics and comic characters across the many different media out there, from original print source material to the recent renaissance of television, movies, and digital media. If you love geek culture as much as we do, then tune in to our semi-weekly podcast series. Episodes of this and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts can be found at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, the Pulp to Pixel podcast Facebook page, through iTunes or through Stitcher under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts.
come right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. You meddled in things John Sable Freelance, number 10, Triptych, March 1984. Created, written, and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens with some unfinished business as John Sable breaks into the bedroom of Sherman's accomplice from the previous issue. He lets her know that the nuclear weapon she had intended to deliver to the UN as a symbolic show of power of her organization was actually going to be detonated in an effort to start a war by Andrew Sherman. She thanks him for saving her life and leans in seductively for a kiss, but Sable pushes her away, saying he doesn't like terrorists, not even the pretty ones. Back at home, Sable calls Sonny to invite him for Thanksgiving dinner. Sonny declines, saying his family is so happy to see him, and they have so many plans for him that he won't be able to get away. After the call, Sonny's landlord stops by and invites him to Thanksgiving dinner, and he readily accepts. He's really alone with no plans after all, but didn't want to admit that to Sable. John Sable finishes his latest manuscript and calls his editor, Eden Kendall, to let her know it is ready. She reminds him he is booked as B.B. Flem for an appearance on live network television to promote his books early the next morning. He admits he is nervous because he's never been on live TV before. She asks him to drop the manuscript off at Mike's house so she can start on the illustrations. She doesn't have time herself as she is leaving town for Thanksgiving. Sable agrees and asks if she is going to Racine, Wisconsin. She is stunned and wants to know how he knew where she was from. He explained that when he bought her new car, he dealt with the DMV to register it, and there he learned that Eden Kendall has a pen name as well, and her real name is Edna Mae Kowalski. As he teases her, Eden angrily hangs up the phone. At Mike's place, Sable meets her roommate, Gray Adler, who is a dancer and choreographer, and is working on a sword fighting scene for an adaptation of The Three Musketeers. Gray doesn't know much about fencing, so Sable invites him to see a championship competition so the two can get to know each other better. Back at home, Sable sees the reminder of the TV interview on his calendar and looks worried. After spending some time throwing up in the toilet, he heads out for a midnight jog in the city, hoping to relieve his nervousness, and runs into some thugs in the park and a fight ensues. Sable quickly knocks down several, but is relieved when the cops arrive on the scene. Captain Winters shows up later because he heard Sable was involved. Winters is gruff as always, and Sable asks why he doesn't like him. Winters explains that cops have rules to follow, and work hard day in and day out with little or no thanks. Meanwhile, Sable doesn't have to play by the rules and gets all the glory. Listening closely, Sable gets a little insight into Winters' true feelings and even learns it's his son's birthday the next day. On live TV the next morning, Gene Shalit of the Today Show introduces noted children's author B.B. Flem, and as the cameras turn toward our hero, we find that he has fallen asleep, leaving Gene Shalit to stare at the camera in disbelief. That evening, Captain Winters arrives at home to find children's author B.B. Flem sitting on the couch reading to the children at his son's birthday party. Winters' wife tells him that B.B. Flem surprisingly knocked on their door because his car broke down just outside their house. The kids immediately recognized him, and they invited him inside, and he's been reading to them ever since. B.B. Flem introduces himself to Winters, and thanks him for being a police officer and for all of the important work he does, and we see Detective Winters smile for perhaps the first time in the series. The cover features three very different personas of John Sable, in costume as B.B. Flem, wearing his battle mask, and as just plain John Sable. 
It's a great design and very fitting for a story titled Triptych, which is traditionally a work of art done on three hinged panels for folding. On the title page, I especially like the way the title Deadline is used in a crossword puzzle on the page where John is finishing a crossword puzzle book. This story is all about character development, both John Sable as well as others in his life. We get little bits of inside information about Sonny, Eden, Mike, and Captain Winters. The panel where Eden realizes Sable has learned about her background is great. She has a completely startled expression on her face, and her body language looks like someone who is defeated. There is a nice segment of Sable getting to know Mike's roommate. There is a wonderful montage of panels in the background, suggesting the two are finding they have lots in common, including the films of Humphrey Bogart, Cars, and Guns. Also in Mike's apartment, we see a great sketch of John Sable that Mike did as she ponders the emptiness of his life. And we get a broad spectrum of information about John Sable, seeing how kind and caring he can be by the way he manufactures an excuse for B.B. Flem to show up for the birthday party for Captain Winter's son. We even see how the adventurer who can go up against poachers in Africa and terrorists in New York can be nervous and frightened of a looming TV interview. It's funny that his solution to his worry is to go for a jog in the park at night, and the chance for a fight with a group of muggers helps melt his nervousness away. John Sable, Freelance Number 11, The Cat, April 1984. Created, written, and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. The story opens in Monte Carlo, where John Sable is wearing a tuxedo and playing blackjack at a casino. A beautiful blonde woman walks up and joins the game. She wins the next round and turns to Sable and offers to buy him a drink. The two walk to the casino lobby and admire a display of jewels decoratively hanging on a Christmas tree. These jewels are to be auctioned on Christmas Day, and the two discuss the prized 23-carat diamond that sits in the center of a star at the top of the tree. After the blonde lady departs, the head of security walks over and tells Sable he shouldn't waste his time on Lady Margaret. The two discuss security arrangements, and he gives Sable a history lesson about the diamond and the star. It was once a prized possession of the Cuban government and was set in a gold star in the floor of the Capitol building in 1929 and remained there until it was stolen in 1946. Since then, it has changed hands many times over the years, but no one has voluntarily returned it to Cuba. Later that night, the casino is dark when a thief enters through the roof. As he lowers himself on a cable down into the lobby, an alarm is triggered. Sable cuts the cable and unmasks the thief. The head of security shows up with Lady Margaret on his arm. They had been out to dinner when the alarm rang. The chief of security begins boasting about the security system that Sable has designed. He praises its inventive details, while Sable tries to interrupt and stop him from giving away all of the secrets about the system. Back in New York, Sonny is briskly walking along the street with a smile on his face and carrying an armful of presents. He arrives in an apartment with the name Pratt on the door and rings the bell. A woman opens the door and looks shocked to see him. He says he's in town and wanted to drop off presents for the kids. The woman slams the door in his face, and we see Sonny slowly shuffle away, and the smile on his face is gone. The next night, Sable is at a Christmas party on a yacht where he sees Lady Margaret. The two dance and go to a quiet spot for champagne. As they talk, Sable lets her know he is aware of her connection to Cuba. She clarifies that while her father was Cuban, her mother was British. Meanwhile, she discreetly slips a tranquilizer into his drink. Next to the casino, we see her use a gas canister to reveal the location of the lasers used in the alarm system. She then uses a crossbow to shoot a cable across the balcony and carefully makes her way across to the star. 
She removes the diamond, but just as she leaves the room, her cable pulls loose and sets off the alarm, but she swings through the security gate just before it closes. The next day, the security chief is furious and complains that Sable was supposed to be the best. He smiles and says, second best. Here's to Maggie the cat. The cover to this issue is striking. It's primarily black and white, and John Sable is nowhere to be seen. Instead, we have a black cat with green eyes and wearing a jeweled collar. To one side, we have a beautiful blonde lady in a black backless dress holding a gun. Mike Grell shared with us that this was another one of the covers he had to fight for. In this case, the editor and publisher told him the lead character needed to be on all of the covers and that this would hurt sales. Instead, as with the Target cover we discussed a couple of episodes ago, this cover received lots of praise and recognition in the industry. It is beautiful, and we are glad he was able to convince them to use it. The interior art is equally great. Both of the theft sequences were well done and suspenseful. The steps in the theft are clever and well illustrated, and made me think of good caper films like To Catch a Thief, The Thomas Crown Affair, and Entrapment. The sequence with Sonny may be short, but it is significant and sad. We've gotten some definite glimpses into his life with these Thanksgiving and Christmas issues. John Sable gets to be a bit like James Bond in this issue, in Monte Carlo, wearing classy formal wear, and flirting with a beautiful lady. Mike Grell is a James Bond fan and did a great 007 miniseries titled Permission to Die. It's another series that we will certainly cover sometime in the future. We've had the opportunity to talk with Mike Grell about James Bond before and found that, just like the two of us, his favorite 007 film is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, featuring George Lazenby in his only appearance as Bond, and also the wonderful Diana Rigg from the British espionage series The Avengers. We encourage everyone to revisit that fabulous movie with a fresh perspective and see why it has become more popular with Bond fans over time. It was fun to find some history interwoven in the book, allowing us to learn about the real-life diamond from the Cuban capital. The story told in the comic is close to the actual history of the diamond. There was a 25-carat diamond embedded in a golden star in the Capitol building in Cuba, and it was used to mark the point from which all distances in Cuba were measured. It was really stolen, just as Mike Grell mentions, but in real life, the diamond was only missing for a few months before it was returned to the government of Cuba. Hey folks, and welcome to the Geek Brain Popcast. I am Jeff Messer. I am your host for all things geek each and every week. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out on our main website, 880therevolution.com. That's where I work as a radio host five days a week. But I can't wait to get my geek on each and every week as we share stories from the world of geek. Movies, TV, comic books. Hey, you know, comic books. The source material. We have great discussions plus interviews. And I'm not ashamed to let people know that my geek flag is flying high. I'm very proud to be a geek. I am a lifelong fan of comics, of science fiction. I'm a Star Wars kid. I'm a big, big fan of DC, Marvel, you name it. We cover everything you can think of and a little bit more. From The Walking Dead to Star Wars to Star Trek, Doctor Who, comic books, DC, Marvel, Batman, Superman, Iron Man, you name it, we cover it. And if you have any suggestions, please send them our way. Check us out on Facebook, the Geek Brain Popcast. You can comment there and follow our antics. Plus, tune in each and every week as we go deep into the geek right here at the Geek Brain Popcast, where geeks have finally inherited the earth.
The Warlord Number 15, Holocaust, November 1978. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker, Joe Rubenstein. Colors, Adrienne Roy. Letters by Karen. Editor, Larry Hama. Our story opens with Morgan, Mariah, and Machiste traveling through the dense forest of Evendar as they continue their quest. Thinking they must be nearing their destination, Morgan climbs a tall tree until he finally reaches the top of the forest canopy. There, he sees the magnificent city of Shambhala in the distance and thinks his quest is nearly over. On the forest floor, Mariah is in a particularly bad mood, and Machiste suspects why. He knows that she has fallen in love with Morgan and can't be happy that Tara is so near. As Morgan climbs back down the tree, a laser beam fires from the city, cutting through a branch and causing him to fall. But he manages to grab a vine and gracefully swings down to the forest floor just like Tarzan. The two then come across a group of refugees fleeing from the city. These refugees tell our heroes that some nameless horror has climbed from the depths of the city, bringing havoc and destruction, and the king is dead. Morgan tells them he is searching for Tara, and they immediately know he must be the hero named the Warlord, and that Tara has been saying he would come for her. The refugees tell Morgan that if she is still alive, he will find her in the palace. Morgan races to the city, finding it mostly deserted. Pushing open the giant doors of the palace, he calls out to Tara, and she calls back to him from the top of the stairs. He races up to greet her, but is welcomed with a punch that sends him flying to the floor. I waited for you, she calls out, but I see you were off somewhere with a flame-haired hussy. Mariah doesn't respond kindly to that comment, and she and Tara draw their swords and begin to duel. But Morgan separates them and takes Tara in his arms and says, I'll never let you go again. Mariah runs from the palace, and Morgan wonders what has gotten into her. Machiste calls Morgan a fool and then rushes out after Mariah. Just then, laser beams blast through the floor, throwing Morgan and Tara off balance. Morgan tells Tara that the two of them should leave, but she has something to show him first. She leads him into an adjoining room and introduces him to his son, who has been born during the many months since he last saw her. She has not named their son yet, wanting to wait for Morgan so they could name him together. They decide to name him Joshua, after Morgan's father. Morgan wants to take Tara and his son from the city immediately, but Tara explains that with the death of her father, her and Morgan's son is now king, and she does not want to abandon the city. Since the laser blasts have been coming from below, Morgan thinks that he and Tara should investigate. They leave their son in the care of an elderly woman named Madzu. Morgan and Tara wind their way down staircases into dark tunnels, and finally into a cavern in the bedrock under the city where they find a river. They see a small shaft of light in the distance, and find a small metal ladder leading further down into the depths. As they descend, the light gets increasingly brighter until the narrow shaft opens onto what looks like a huge underground factory. Morgan suspects that the small computer installation that he and Tara found months ago is probably one of many small branch stations spread throughout Skataris. He thinks this huge facility is the main system that the Atlanteans built to control Skataris, but something has gone wrong. Lasers begin firing at the two, and they realize it must be the computer's defense system. Morgan pulls out his gun and begins shooting and disabling various lasers, but there are too many of them. He and Tara are forced to retreat, but as they race through the facility, Morgan sees what he suspects is the main power system, which is being powered by a focused beam of sunlight coming through a tunnel. Morgan and Tara climb up through the tunnel shaft alongside the beam of sunlight until they find a series of parabolic mirrors focusing the sunlight. Morgan and Tara turn a giant wheel located on the side of one of the mirrors, redirecting the intense beam of sunlight until it begins to burn through a rock wall. 
This releases the power of the river to flood the computer facility below, leaving Morgan to sadly regret being forced to destroy what would have certainly been a source of great knowledge for the people of Skataris. When Morgan and Tara return to the palace, they find Madzu has been killed, and as they race from the palace, they see the evil Demos flying away on the back of a giant dragon, holding their crying son in his hands. After several recent teases, Tara is finally reintroduced into the story, and Morgan is greeted with a son he didn't know he had. With all of the revelations and character moments in the story, it's amazing that Mike Grell finds time to fit in an adventure, but he certainly does, and in the course of these pages we see a wide range of locations that really show off his artistic talent, from forests, to the city of Shambhala, to the underground caverns, to the huge computer facility. The cover features Morgan and Tara in the depths of the control room with laser blasts firing all around them. Giant video screens are in the background featuring scenes including Tara's fight with Mariah and a menacing image of Deimos. The opening page in the forest of Ebendar is impressive with mighty trees and twisting roots and branches. But when you turn that first page you are greeted with an even more impressive two-page spread of the canopy of trees with Shambhala in the distance and a pterodactyl flying overhead. The pages of Morgan and Tara descending into the depths until they reach the underground computer facility are gorgeous, with a large variety of panel layouts including long narrow vertical panels and lots of diagonal panels that really emphasize the feeling of confinement in the caverns. The page where Morgan is shooting out laser beams is another page filled with lots of diagonal panels that really propel the story quickly. I loved Morgan swinging down from the trees, and it gave Mike Grell another opportunity to do an homage to Tarzan since he's such a big fan of the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs. And just thinking of Tarzan momentarily, the new trailer dropped for the Tarzan movie that comes out this summer, and it certainly looks exciting. We'll definitely be seeing it. The Warlord number 16, The Quest, Part 1, Visions in the Crimson Eye, December 1978. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker, Coletta and Company. Colors, Adrienne Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Ross Andrew. The story opens with a depressed Morgan sitting all alone and drinking wine. Tara enters the room accompanied by a giant 150-pound golden hound named Shadow and tells him he can stay and drown himself in wine or he can come with her to find their son. Tara leads Morgan to a small menacing-looking cottage in a dark corner of the forest. An ebony bird flies toward them and suddenly transforms into an elderly woman called Saba. Tara wants to use her magic to reveal the location of Demos and their son. In exchange, Saba wants the Eye of Shaka Khan. As Tara and Morgan ride their horses toward the temple of Shaka Khan, they are ambushed by warriors who ensnare Morgan and the hound in nets and take Tara captive. Morgan manages to free himself and Shadow. The giant hound quickly picks up the scent and the two race off in pursuit. The warriors have taken Tara to the temple of Shaka Khan and are preparing to sacrifice her to a giant wooden statue of a cyclops-like warrior with a giant red jewel for its single eye. Morgan quietly takes out the guards, and as the temple priest raises the sacrificial dagger to kill Tara, Morgan shoots him through the chest with his gun. Morgan and Shadow race into the temple as warriors rush toward them. Morgan slashes with his sword, freeing Tara, who grabs the sacrificial dagger and begins to wield it as a weapon. Moments later, the two have defeated the warriors, and Morgan climbs up the giant wooden statue to retrieve the Eye of Shaka Khan. But Morgan doesn't realize the blood dripping from his injured hand will bring the statue to life and just as he pries the jewel from the statue, Shaka Khan roars to life, hitting Morgan. Tara reacts quickly by stabbing the sacrificial dagger into the giant statue's wooden leg. It bends over in pain, and she then hurls a flaming brazier into its face, setting it on fire. 
Morgan and Tari give the jewel to Saba, who cast an incantation spell on the eye, revealing an image of Demos holding their son Joshua. He plans to raise the boy as his own son, teaching him to hate Morgan, and then sending him to kill Morgan. As he and Tara leave, Morgan overhears Saba's delight in knowing that once Morgan kills Demos, she, Saba, will become the most powerful wizard in Skataris now that she has the eye of Shaka Khan. Morgan turns and fires his gun, destroying the jewel, and saying, There's already enough evil in this world. The cover features an image of Morgan swinging his sword toward the eye of Shaka Khan, which is showing a vision of Demos holding Joshua. This is a great issue for Tara. While Morgan wallows in depression, she is confidently formulating plans to retrieve their son. She knows the wizard Saba can help them, and in the temple, she is the one who destroys the giant statue of Shaka Khan. I really enjoyed seeing Tara in control, and the art in that action sequence is great and concludes with a lovely silhouette of Morgan, Tara, and Shadow with the red and yellow flames in the distance. My favorite page in the book is probably when Morgan and Shadow sneak into the temple. It's a great view of the two of them in a cave opening with the giant statue and warriors in the distance. The perspective is excellent, and the twisting roots in the roof of the cavern create an ominous effect. I also just want to mention that this issue was dated December 1978, and in the back, there's a small three-panel comic strip that features Firestorm, whose comic had just recently been canceled. In the comic, Firestorm is fretting about losing his title, but he is finding other work. In the last panel, a group of kids are roasting marshmallows in the flames from his head. It was a hilarious little comic, but I felt a little guilty laughing at it since I know how much our friend Shag loves Firestorm. But at least we all know Firestorm would return with a successful and long-running title in the 1980s. And now he's on TV too, so it's all good in the end. The Warlord, number 17, The Quest, Part 2, Citadel of Death, January 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks Vince Coletta. Colors Adrienne Roy. Letters Milton Snapen. Editor Jack C. Harris. Morgan and Tara are on horseback, and along with the giant hound Shadow, they are trekking across a vast expanse of desert. They are on their way to find Demos and their son. The heat is extreme, and they have run out of water. They spot a citadel in the distance and rush toward it. When they arrive, they find it abandoned and quickly turn to search for water. Tara recognizes the Citadel as a long-lost legendary city of evil that she learned about growing up. It was once occupied by evil sorcerers with armies of demons. As they drink water from a spring in the city center, they are ambushed by a large pack of beasts. The battle is fierce. Morgan and Tara strike down many beasts with their swords, but are forced to retreat inside to a better position since they are outnumbered. A new wave of beasts attack and Morgan falls through a trapdoor into the dark catacombs below leaving Tara to continue the fight on her own. Morgan sees a red box on the ground that is emitting light, and he picks it up to help illuminate his surroundings. He then notices the box was at the center of a magical symbol cut into the floor, along with a long-dead skeleton holding a sword. Suddenly, Morgan is attacked by a tentacled monster, but when he tries to cut it with his sword, the weapon passes through, leaving the creature unharmed. Morgan thinks fast and runs to the center of the magical symbol, and he is relieved that he guessed correctly. The monster can't cross the lines of the magical symbol cut into the floor. Here we step back in time to learn of an ambitious sorcerer named Ogier, who was obsessively searching for power. Long ago, he entered the citadel on the offense, striking down guards and using power from a green emerald around his neck. He was rewarded with the discovery of a small red glowing box that was hidden in the city. But just as he tried to make his escape, he fell through the same trapdoor into the catacombs beneath the palace floor. 
Instantly, a huge tentacled monster attacked Ogier, who swiftly used his sword to cut a magical symbol into the floor around him. It created a barrier protecting him for the moment, but he finds no way to escape and eventually succumbs to starvation. Back in the present, Morgan knows he must find a way to escape. He decides to break open the red glowing box, and inside he finds half of an emerald. He finds it can join with the emerald around the neck of the skeleton on the floor. Once the two stones are joined, a powerful light is emitted and the monster is destroyed. Morgan says a sincere thank you to the skeleton before running up the staircase in the distance. He quickly rejoins Tara and easily defeats the remaining beasts with the magical emerald. On the cover, Morgan is in danger, with an enormous monster at his back and a skeleton at his feet. In the interior, the desert scenes are stunning, and the view of the citadel in the distance under the relentless sun is terrific. I really enjoyed the adventure of them exploring the seemingly deserted city. There are broken statues and crumbling structures. It looks like the perfect setting for an adventure story, and that's exactly what we get. I was impressed with the variety of settings within this city. It was well-paced as the two moved through a variety of locations, creating suspense. As usual, the Warlord action scenes are amazing, and Tara proves to be a fierce warrior holding her own against the many beasts, even when she is left to fight alone. She really knows how to use her sword. The way Mike Grail told the story of the sorcerer Ogier is really interesting. While we summarized it in one section for simplicity, it is much more elaborately told in the comic. On most pages of the book, the top two-thirds of each page tell the story of Morgan and Tara, while the bottom one-third tells the parallel story of Ogier, and the panels of the Ogier story are framed with geometric designs, suggesting magic runes like the one he carves into the floor. This approach gives Mike Grell the opportunity to show a mirror image of the city at two very different points in time. So at the bottom of each page, you will see a view of the beautiful city at its height, while the top of the same page will show the same view of the city in decay. It creates a very distinctive look and separates the two parallel stories nicely. I really love the whole effect. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate every comment we receive and know they add so much to the show. So a sincere thank you to everyone who took the time to write in or get in touch through social media. We'll open with a big thank you to Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, from Pulp to Pixel. He created some amazing digital art for Warlord Worlds. This includes great action shots of John Sable, Warlord Travis Morgan, Torn of Starslayer, and Green Arrow. The details are terrific. I especially like the Warlord's helmet. There are two different pieces, and we'll be sharing them again on our social media sites in case you missed them earlier. Be sure to look at them. They are amazing. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary wrote about Warlord Worlds number 4, saying, I just continue to be impressed with the breadth of topics covered in Mike Grell's comics. To be discussing gay rights and issues back in 1988 was pretty controversial and risky, but it shows just how much Grell wanted to make Green Arrow a relevant book. It also lets them explore Ollie's character, someone who was always a bit more liberal and socially aware. As deep and important as the Arrow issues were, the Warlord issues just sound fun. In particular, the issue with Warlord running through the jungles to escape the man hunting him, as well as survive the environment, was evocative of the most dangerous game. But it also sounded like a prequel to The Hunger Games. Your description also reminded me of the old Bear Grylls show Man vs. Wild. Maybe Grylls could do a live-action Warlord. Hey, we think that sounds like a great idea, Ange. Joe Crawford wrote about our last episode on Facebook saying, What a great episode. I really appreciate you covering the gamut of Mike Grell's work. I am a huge fan of his Legion work as well. I have most of his issues through the last Showcase Presents The Legion of Superheroes, Volume Number 5. 
Also, great to hear more Star Slayer coverage. What a great series, and what a great and gorgeous issue. I am working on getting caught up to the show on Green Arrow. I started the first trade last night, and I'm really excited to read more. I also enjoy your Warlord recaps. I love the series, but have never read the early issues. Michael Lane wrote in and said, I can't wait to hear your next episode. I'm very impressed by the load you took upon yourself covering so many series, but I think you've found a good format for it. Thank you, Michael. And he recently posted on the Mike Grell Facebook page an image of a Longbow Hunters promotional poster autographed by Mike Grell. He just had it framed and was happy to share it with the others. It was gorgeous. Karen in Between the Pages said, I'm not sure which is more impressive, that you two covered nine issues in one episode or the number of different genres you covered in this episode. Thanks, Karen. We really enjoy the variety of genres and appreciate that they all have in common high-caliber storytelling, art, and writing. Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog recently brightened our day by sending us a screenshot of Warlord Worlds playing on his phone. He was catching up on episodes on his bus commute to work. It brought a smile to our face, thinking that we have a friend listening to our show in beautiful Scotland. We appreciated comics in the Golden Age sharing a Warlord Worlds post on their site, saying that while it wasn't Golden Age, it was still an interesting and fun podcast covering the work of talented writer and artist Mike Grell that they wanted to recommend. Thank you. Chris Mounts posted about recently reading the John Sable novel, which he highly recommended. We really need to pick up a copy of that for ourselves. Thanks for the reminder, Chris. Holly M. shared a signed print she got from Mike Grell of his cover to the first issue of the digital comic based on the Arrow TV series, and we had a nice exchange of messages online about how nice it would have been if Mike Grell had continued to work on a series based on that TV show. Holly also encouraged anyone interested in a Grell commission to contact CatskillComics.com, and we agree completely. Juan, Gabe, and John over at Thinking Outside the Longbox let us know they love Warlord and were happy to discover the show. Be sure to check out their pop culture podcast that covers a variety of topics. We'll include a link in the show notes. Brian Mulvey sent us photos of some original art he picked up from John Sable issue 5. It is one piece that contains a two-page spread. In the issue, turn to pages 10 and 11 to see the image and keep an eye on our social media sites and we'll share pictures of it. Brian had been saving up his pennies for quite a while to make that purchase and we are happy he was able to add it to his collection. The detail is amazing. Michael Carlisle of the Crap Box of Son of Cthulhu blog forwarded a link to us from the blog Bronze Age Babies. It was about the Aquaman work of Mike Grell in the 1970s that is included in the trade Death of a Prince. It was a very interesting post for us since we're fans of both Aquaman and Mike Grell, and we've actually heard Mike talk about his time on Aquaman. We remember those stories fondly and had a nice exchange of thoughts with Michael about our favorite Mike Grell titles and our favorite Aquaman eras, which included lots of the recent work of writer Jeff Johns with artists Ivan Reese and Joe Prado, as well as writer Jeff Parker with artists Paul Pelletier and Sean Parsons. And then Mark Sweeney of the blog and podcast I'm the Gun chimed in with his thoughts on a favorite era of Aquaman comics, which was the 1991 run by Sean McLaughlin and Ken Hooper, and we readily agree those were great issues too. Mark then provided a link to a post on his blog where he covered those issues, so we'll include that in our show notes too. It's very nice when a fun conversation like this can come out of a shared post. So a big thanks to Michael Carlisle, Mark Sweeney, and Karen and Doug over at Bronze Age Babies for creating such a great opportunity for a pleasant conversation. Our friend Clinton Robison kindly invited us to team up with him to write a review for his excellent coffee and comics blog, covering the 50th anniversary special Green Arrow Annual Number 4. We really enjoyed working on that review and love the panels and pages Clinton chose for the post. He sent us a kind thank you saying it was truly wonderful coverage. Well, thank you, Clinton, and we'll include a link to that Coffee and Comics post in the show notes. 
Concerning the blog post, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grell Facebook page wrote that it was a most excellent review. You are correct about the story borrowing heavily from the mid-80s Robin Hood show, since the story's co-writer, Mark Ryan, was actually an actor on that series. A big thank you to Gus for pointing out that connection. If anyone would like to learn more about Mark Ryan and his role as Nazir on the show, take a look at BoldOutlaw.com to see an interview where he also mentions working with Mike Grell on the Green Arrow title. Karen of Between the Pages pointed out that the blog read like an episode of Trekker Talk. That's our other podcast about Ron Randall's Trekker, where we usually go in-depth on a single issue of Trekker or another work by Ron Randall. She is now considering picking up the Robin of Sherwood series as she's heard it referenced so often. I can't blame her. Joe Crawford from The Non-Discerning Reader commented, What a great read. Darren and Ruth do a great job covering and critiquing this issue. I honestly am not surprised, though. Their podcasts are two of the best-produced shows that I listen to. Hey, thanks, Joe. You're so kind. When Jeff Messer spotted the gorgeous cover of that Green Arrow annual, he recognized it immediately and made a confession. He liked it so much he had placed a copy of that cover in the front of his Robin Hood script when he was originally using it. I'm sure that it was great to look at during all those rehearsals. You may remember Jeff as an actor, playwright, and has a daily radio talk show on 880 The Revolution and does the Geek Brain podcast. He is a big fan of Robin Hood and co-wrote a play about the character with Robert Akers. Jeff has a great Facebook page titled Robin Hood, The Legend of Sherwood. I recommend that you check it out if you like Robin Hood, too. And we are very happy to say we received a new iTunes review from the irredeemable shag of Firestorm Fan and the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Fantastic comic book podcast celebrating Mike Grell. Everybody loves Mike Grell comics. Here is a podcast dedicated to the creator across numerous works. Such a clever idea for a show. Instead of just following one of his seminal works, like Green Arrow, they celebrate tons of Mike Grell's work. You can get your fix for Green Arrow, Warlord, and John Sable all in one sitting. Love the show and the hosts are great together. They have a real passion for the works, are very knowledgeable, and incredibly nice folks too. What are you waiting for? Haven't you been listening to me? Subscribe right now. Hey, thank you so much, Shag. Yes, that was great. Thank you, Shag. And we mentioned Jeff Messer earlier, and he wrote in about the last episode saying, The coverage of John Sable 8 and 9 reminded me of a great thing Mike said to me in the first interview I did with him back in 2014. I asked him about the Iron Mike nickname right at the top, and he told about the story he used in those issues being originally an Iron Mike tell, a previous character he was trying to sell. And Jeff included the audio clip from that interview. So we're going to close out our feedback section with some words from Mike Grell himself. The one and only Mike Grell, Iron Mike, as they used to call him. Or do you still go with that by that name? Well, I still have art school chums who call me Iron Mike because we're five guys named Mike in the same class. <laughs> so, so I'm really Jeff. I'm great. I'm, I'm wonderful. Now, with Iron Mike, now I, I've heard legends as to why that was the nickname that you got. Can you enlighten us on that a little bit? The Iron Mike was the name of a comic strip that I was trying to title at the time. Uh, hard-boiled private detective uh, cut in the vein of Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer. Aha. All right. So uh, a lot of that later translated into your, your John Sable character a little bit, I think. To a certain extent, so, yes. Yeah, As a matter of fact. A lot of hard-boiled. I, uh, I, 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 I used one entire storyline from the comic strip for Sable. Not, which Wait one? Not one, not. <laughs> That's right. Now, you know, there's no such thing as a, a useless line of dialogue, right? You always put it in a drawer and go, "I'm going to use that later." In this Basically, case, yeah. In this case, you yeah. use the whole story. Which which one was that? Do you remember which which story it was? Don't remember the, the title of the story, but it had to do with. Uh, let's see, how did it go? Um, an old friend of the Sables is um, accused of uh, a robbery. 
uh, burglary. And uh, for some reason, people start trying to kill him, and it turns out the reason why is because uh, before um, that person was was uh, caught up in all of this, they actually did break into the safe, but they uh, they mailed the uh, incriminating evidence to say, well, it had to do with a, a terrorist plot, and uh, it, it, we're talking 30 years plus here. <laughs> That's um, right. It was uh, yeah, I, it was issue number eight and nine of the original series, as I recall. It was. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you there know, you go. I, I only yeah. I, I only know this because I've been uh, rereading the series from the beginning, and I, I read those issues uh, in the omnibus uh, like two weeks ago. So I just came across ah. that. <laughs> so it's fresh on my mind. A big thank you to Jeff for sending that. And next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. Before we start, let us say if we miss a name, please let us know and we'll correct it in the next episode. And also forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just email us and let us know and we'd be happy to correct that next episode as well. Andrew Kolvek, Andy Kapelish, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford of Feathers and Foes, BC Fan 101, Brian Mulvey, Bronze Age Babies, Captain J. Kirk, Captain Marvel, Chris Mounts, Cindy Womack, Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics Blog, Craig Lee McGinnis, DC in the 80s, Diabolu Frank of the Idlehead of Diabolu Martian Manhunter Blog, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, Dread, Drunken Dork Podcast, Ed Terry and Nick Moore of Till Productions, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Holly Elm, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast, Jim Romoldi, Joe Crawford of For the Non-Deserting Reader, John Baker, Karen Williams of Between the Pages Blog, Kim Tai Ferragamo, Kyle Benning of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, L.A. Robb, Larry W. Looper Jr., a.k.a. Vic Sage 2005, writer for The Retroist, Lori Sutton, writer of You Choose Adventure Books, Longbox Graveyard, Mark Sweeney, Martin Gray of The Too Dangerous Blog, Michael Lane, Michael Wagner, Minor Sector, Olio Media, Paul Carroll, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly of the Aquaman Shrine and Fire and Water Podcast Network, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly of Secret Origins, Shag Matthews, Firestorm Fan, Shane Hensley, our longtime friend and owner of Pinnacle Entertainment Group, Shazam Cast, Son of Cthulhu, Thinking Outside the Long Box, Tim Wallace of Court Industries, and Zeb Oswalt. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Warlord Worlds. You can also visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a great way to get the show noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. You may also enjoy our other podcast, Trekker Talk, about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Rell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. 
Music is taken from the album Royalty Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you.